You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. Well, good morning. How is everyone doing this morning? Good. It is the last unofficial weekend of summer, which is like not exciting for me. How many of you have kids going back to school this week? Yeah, a good number of us. Uh, This is also the last week of our series, Soul Work. So we've been working this summer through a variety of different spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices that, first of all, help stabilize our souls, help cultivate a healthy soul. But more importantly than that, when these things are put into practice, they actually make us more like the person of Jesus. And that is the ultimate goal of why we gather, why we worship together, is to become people who look more like Jesus as a result. And so the last week this week is all about the discipline of celebration. And it might seem kind of weird to hear the word discipline and celebration in the same sentence, but celebration really is a discipline in our lives that takes practice and takes work to cultivate. And so I want to begin this morning by sharing how I really saw celebration lived out on our team's trip to Guatemala this past May. So as many of you know, we're starting a brand new Guatemala partnership. And shameless plug, we have another trip coming up in January. And actually, I brought paperwork. uh, So if you're interested in that trip, applications are not due till the end of September. So there's still time to pray about it, ask questions. So after service, I'd love to see if you're interested in that, and I'll get you some, some paperwork. But... One of the most unforgettable experiences that I think our team had in Guatemala was traveling to this neighborhood in Guatemala City called El Granizo. And the church there in Guatemala is about 15 minutes away that we were working with, but every single week this church comes, they pack up all of their volunteers, all of their stuff, and they go to this neighborhood called El Granizo to run an after-school ministry program, kind of like a, a VBS. But I would say program probably is not the right word to describe it. It's more of a party than a program, like a massive Jesus party where they pack up all of their volunteers, they blow up a bunch of balloons, they bring soccer ball or footballs, I guess is the right word for it, and a lot like those parachute things you play with in, in school. I mean, they just go all out to throw this party for these kids that live in a neighborhood where there's not an established church. And it was amazing to participate in because I got to walk with some of these kids. And some of these kids are three and four years old, walking two to three miles to come to get this to this party. And every single week, they're seeing 90 plus kids come to this party. And I actually, I brought a picture of of what this looks like or what this looked like for our team. And this is Pastor Jorge. He's the pastor of uh, the church there. And what I love about Pastor Jorge is he is a guy who exudes joy. I mean, just look at his Bible. Does that not scream joy on the front cover there? And and here he is, and he's preaching the gospel to to 90-plus kids with joy and celebration. But what was, for me, the most, I don't know, impactful part, the most challenging part of this whole thing was that as you see this guy, you see behind him there is balloons and joy, 
But then behind that is a fence. And in the park right next door to the place that we were, there were at least a dozen or so gang members surrounding this celebration. And these gang members work really hard to catch these kids at a young age so they can disciple them in the way of gang life. And so as we're celebrating this, and you can even see it with the leader in the background there looking out towards the gangs, they literally told me, don't turn your camera to get the gangs in the pictures because we'll get in trouble otherwise. And so here we are in this amazing Jesus celebration with a pretty ugly backdrop in the background. And as I thought about that experience, what I'm struck by is that the scandal of Christian celebration is always set against a dark backdrop. Like that's by nature, the very scandal of Christian joy is the backdrop that it's set against. And this isn't new. I mean, think about the announcement of the birth of Jesus. You have angels in Luke 2 appearing to these shepherds and, and singing these joyful songs. And they're saying, we have come to bring you good news of great joy for all people. And that celebration was set against a backdrop of oppressive Roman occupation, impoverished shepherds celebrating, joyful. The same thing is true throughout Jesus' life and even to the end of it. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. The joy of Jesus is set against the backdrop of a Roman execution device called a cross. You see, guys, the scandal of Christian joy is always the dark backdrop that it's set against. It's always been that way. And as I think about just joy and celebration, if we're really brutally honest with ourselves, are churches really known for throwing the best parties? Like, are we known as the best celebrators? No, we're not. Like, if somebody, <laughs> somebody's back there like, yes, we are. <laughs> like, if I were to, if you were to tell me, like, hey, I went to a really banging party last night, the question I'm not going to ask you is, oh, really, what church were you at? Right? Like, that's not how we think about celebration. And to be honest, like, if we're brutally honest, Christians aren't always the best at celebrating. And I wonder why that is. And as I've thought about that, here's what I think tends to happen in our lives. That if celebration is always set against a dark backdrop, I think what often happens is we fixate on the backdrop more often in our lives than the reason that we have to celebrate that's standing against it. Like your backdrop can look like a number of different things in your life. Maybe, maybe your backdrop that gets in the way of celebration is comparison with other people. You just look around and you see what other people do have and you're reminded of what you don't have and that fixation stands in the way of you being able to celebrate. Maybe for you it's just growing resentment in your life. Somebody hurt you and you haven't been able to let go of that and so you're holding on to this growing bitterness and this bitterness and this growing resentment and that is getting in the way of your ability to celebrate. Maybe for you it's unmet expectations, the shame that you carry with you every day, failures in your life. Or maybe for you the, the backdrop that you're fixated on is is bigger than that. Maybe the backdrop you're fixated on is a culture that seems to be becoming more hostile to Christianity every single day. Maybe the backdrop that, that you're focused on is not the culture, but it's an unstable world. 
or a feeling of scarcity. The, the scandal of Christian celebration for every single one of us is that it's set against a backdrop. And what I want to do today is I want to look at uh, the very first recorded sermon that Jesus ever gave. Right, so he had just recently gotten out of the wilderness and he enters into his public ministry. And this is the first recorded sermon that Jesus ever gave found in Luke 4. And the topic of this sermon is actually celebration. And as we read through this text, Luke 4, what I want to do is I want to show you that there are actually three beautiful layers of celebration that Jesus is inviting us into here today. And so if you will, Luke chapter 4 verses 16 through uh, 18 here. This is what it says. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. So setting the stage for you here, Nazareth is a small rural community. This is not a bustling city we're talking about. This is a, a town of two, maybe 300 people that is very rural in nature. And so Jesus is not in front of a massive megachurch. He's much more likely in front of a small country church. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Jesus unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So here you have the scene, Jesus showing up to his hometown on the Sabbath day. And Sabbath is the first layer of celebration that Jesus is getting at here. Now this is not a sermon about Sabbath, but what I want to do is teach you something perhaps new about what Sabbath is designed to do for the Jewish people. You see, as Jesus enters into the synagogue on the Sabbath, Sabbath for Jewish people was a day of celebration, a day of joy, a day where for six days I labor and I work and I earn and I make a name for myself and I pursue my interests, but on one day of the week I cease from all of that. Why? To celebrate that God is the one who provides to share what I have with other people, to be this person of, of celebration. In fact, when God gave his people the practice of Sabbath, he says that this is a way in which you celebrate and experience liberation from the patterns of this world. Whoop, my, uh, there we go. It's a little loose in the back there. This is a way that you are liberated from the patterns of this world. That for six days you labor and you pursue your own interests, but on the seventh day you rest, you celebrate God's provision. See, the weekly rhythm of celebration was built against the backdrop of broken creation. That you were slaves in Egypt, you were in bondage, but I, the Lord your God, have freed you from that with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And so Sabbath is a way of coming against the systems of accumulation in this world, the feelings of scarcity. Sabbath itself is a celebration against a backdrop of a broken world. But what Jesus is doing here, if you want to go back to that passage there, is he's actually doing something really brilliant here. And I want to, I want to show you what he's doing. So the first few parts of this, uh, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. All of that is taken directly from Isaiah 61. 
Like, you can lay up Isaiah 61 with that. It's almost identical, pretty similar. But then he adds one more kind of tagline to the end of this that's not found in Isaiah 61, and it's this line here, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now, there's only one place where that phrase, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, appears in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament, and that's Isaiah 58. And so what Jesus is doing here is he is taking Isaiah 61 and he's mashing that up with Isaiah 58. And you know what Isaiah 58 was all about? It was about Israel's failure to celebrate Sabbath. That in the midst of God's provision, in the midst of God making a way, Israel was not sharing with the poor among them. They weren't being generous with what God had given them. They weren't celebrating Sabbath in a way that says, God, you are a provider. They were celebrating Sabbath in a way that says, I'm going to fixate way more on my backdrop than the God who provides. And friends, if you're anything like me, you all have a reason in your life not to celebrate, don't you? Every single one of us on this side of eternity has reasons in our life not to celebrate. And if you are waiting for all the reasons that you have not to celebrate to disappear before you experience joy, you ain't never going to experience joy in this life. You're just not. Because the scandal of Christian celebration is that in the midst of a broken world, a dark backdrop, we can experience outrageous joy. Let me illustrate this for you with a story that makes fun of my family. Um, (laughs) So I have three young kids, and uh, we've affectionately named them our three young tornadoes, right? And so they are constantly just going through our house and making this massive mess wherever they go, like Tasmanian devil, right? And, uh, and so, like, literally, I think about even just this last week, like, one of our kids spilled makeup all over our couch. Another of our kids had Vaseline all rubbed up in his hair. Another one smudged poop on the walls and decided that they didn't want to pee in the toilet, so they peed on their carpet. And st- I mean, this is I, like my list could go on and on and on. Can anybody relate? Awesome. A few of us can. Now, here's the deal if my life, like if the thing that I value most in my life is a clean and quiet house. <laughs> I'll get that one day, God willing. But in the midst of that, I'm going to miss out on all of the opportunities that I have to celebrate and experience joy with where my kids are at right now. Like if that's just what I'm waiting on, I'm going to miss the fact that my son this morning crawled into bed with my wife and said, Mommy, can we pray this morning? My three-year-old said that. Isn't that cool? I'm going to miss the fact that my kids still get wonder in their eyes when they find dandelions in the yard, or that daddy's the only one that can wipe away the tears that come when you spill from your bike a sixth time in a row. Put your dang helmet on, kid. (laughs) Like, I love how Mike Foster says this, but celebration in many ways is not missing the miracle of now. That's the invitation here. Don't miss the miracle of now. That's what Sabbath was designed to teach Israel. Don't miss the miracle of now. Yeah, there's a hundred other things in your life. The other six days of the week that are, that are you know, causing your attention and taking up your time and things like that. But, but built into the rhythm of your life, Israel, is going to be a rhythm of celebrating the miracle of now. That God is still present, that he still provides, and that he's still for you.
Friends, on this side of heaven, there's always a backdrop of scarcity. There's always, if you're choosing to focus on it, there is always a feeling of not enough. How do we celebrate in the midst of feelings of scarcity? We choose generosity with what we have now. We choose to be extravagantly generous people, even in the midst of feelings of scarcity. On this side of heaven, there's always going to be a backdrop of uncertainty in your life. Always reasons to feel unstable or like the ground is shaking below you. How do we celebrate God's provision in the midst of our uncertainty? We choose to take bold face steps now, even if they're a little bit risky. Friends, on this side of heaven, there's always going to be feelings of comparison. But people of God choose to celebrate in the midst of comparison by practicing radical gratitude right here and right now. See, the scandal of Christian celebration is that we celebrate even against the backdrop of reasons not to celebrate. So that's the first layer. He goes into Sabbath. The second layer, which is a layer deeper, and this is one of my favorite concepts, I would say, in all of Scripture, is what Jesus says when he closes out this reading here. And so going back to verse 18, let's just read this one more time here. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And then this last line here, let's read that out loud. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Does anybody know what the year of the Lord's favor was for Jewish people? It's a practice called Jubilee. Every 50 years, God called Israel to this massive celebration this massive celebration of all wrongs being made right in their community, of people who are enslaved being freed, of all debts being canceled, of all original land returned to original owners. I mean, if you're an impoverished, this is like a mega ultra Sabbath celebration where wrongs are made right, where things are corrected, and it is a huge, huge celebration. Like, if you're an impoverished Jewish person, chances are you would see this celebration come around once in your lifetime. And so as you can imagine, you are waiting for this celebration. You are longing for it. You are hoping for it. Because it's in this moment where the mistakes of maybe your father or your mother before you, those are corrected, those are set right. You are released from the debt that you have and you are free to build and start a whole new kind of life. I mean, if, if you're a person, like if I were to tell you all your debt's going to be canceled in five years, how many of us will be looking forward to 2027 just a little bit? Yes, absolutely. This was a huge event in the life of a Jewish person, jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, the year of release. And yet the problem is that as best we can tell, Israel never actually celebrated jubilee. God gave them this practice in Leviticus 25. You can read about it. But there's no stories in the Bible other than that of Israel actually putting them, this into practice. There's no historical documents that show Israel putting Jubilee into a practice in their lives. And so why is this? I think that the inability to practice release is one of the biggest barriers to celebration in our lives. Like our inability to walk through life with a posture of release 
is such a big barrier for our ability to celebrate. It is one of the biggest backdrops that gets in the way of our celebration. Let me show you what I mean this way. The reason that I share this with you is because God's heart has a bend towards release. That's what jubilee means. It means to release. Even against the backdrop of a broken world, injustice, pain, oppression, slavery, God sets things right for his people. This is the scandal of celebration. That where you hang on to resentment and unforgiveness towards others, God invites you into a life of celebration that only comes through the power of release. You know, being in the season like we've been in for the last two years, I think every single one of us, in big ways and small ways, is walking with some relational wounding in some small or big way right now. Like Even when I say that, I imagine names come to your mind, to your heart. And in a reality like this, where all of us walk with some level of relational wounding, I'll just share for me, One of the most healing lessons that God has done in my life this year is I feel like at the beginning of 2022, he really said, Brad, this is going to be a year of release for you personally, where you stop holding so tightly to the old thing that I was doing in new life. And you turn your attention and your direction to celebrate the new thing that I am doing that you stop holding on and white-knuckle gripping the pain and the resentment of the past, and you actually let go and you walk with open hands into the new thing that I have for you in the future. And friends, let me tell you, even that process, and it's a process that's daily in a lot of ways, even that process has freed me up personally to genuinely celebrate what God is doing in this community, to have so much excitement for it, so much joy about the fact that we get to do this together in, the com- in community. Jubilee is all about this act of release. Is there an area of your life that you are gripping so tightly and God is calling you to the joy of release? Maybe for you a name comes to mind. Maybe for you a, a broken situation comes to mind. I wrote this on social media, but one of the most helpful practices for me is to repent of what I need to repent of, forgive what I need to forgive, and then be willing to move forward with the new thing that God wants to do. That pattern in our lives is missing for a lot of us. And the question I want to ask you today is, are you willing to to release that, to let that go so that God can unearth some very real joy and celebration in your life? Practice in release is required for celebration because in the backdrop of growing resentment and cynicism and bitterness, release is an invitation to true freedom. And that brings me to the third layer of what Jesus is getting at here. And this, for me, is the most beautiful one of all of them. It's stunning when we begin to understand this. Jesus' ministry from this point forward became all about release. In fact, the very word for release is used over and over in this book of of Luke, that he is releasing people from the bondage of sin, that he is releasing people from the bondage of poverty and all of these different things that they come against. And it's beautiful how this unfolds. So Luke, we're going to read on in verse 20 and 21 here. And I just want you to pay attention to what Jesus does next. And he, so he finishes reading Isaiah and he rolls up the scroll and gives it back to the attendant and sits down. And so this is the moment in the service where the rabbi begins to teach, okay? So he's sitting down, he's getting ready to teach, and he began to say to them, this is a one-sentence sermon. Some of you wish I could do one-sentence sermons. I can't. I'm not Jesus working on it, okay? So today, today, 
This is what Jesus says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's like, bam! If he had a microphone, he would drop it at this moment. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Think about the audacity of this claim in this moment. That here is this carpenter standing in front of his small country church in a small rural town saying Isaiah 61, Isaiah 58, all of it is pointing to fulfillment in me. It's funny because it literally, like, the people respond, and they're like, isn't that Joseph's son? Like, can you picture that in a rural town? Like, ain't that Joe's boy? Him and his brother James used to tip my cows at 2 a.m. when they were in high school. I'm pretty sure Jesus didn't tip cows, okay? That would be wrong. Um, but he, it's not a, is it a sin? I was thinking about that this week. Is it a sin to tip people's cows? I don't know. That's a whole, I'm so ADD, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Anyways, here's what I'm getting at here by sharing this. That this practice of jubilee, one of the things that the prophets were pointing to, so people like Isaiah, people like Jeremiah, is that there would one day come a jubilee not just for Israel but for all nations. A jubilee where a mysterious figure, an anointed figure called the Messiah, would come in and usher not just a year of the Lord's favor but an entirely new era of the Lord's favor. A jubilee where all of creation experiences restoration. Where every debt and peace and place of bondage in our lives experiences release through this Messiah. And so Jesus speaking to a Jewish audience here, speaking Isaiah 61, they would have had this memorized. And when Jesus says, hey, this passage that you know really, really well, it's finding its fulfillment in me, well, it's no wonder they wanted to throw him off a cliff right after he said this. Right? He's making an audacious claim that one of the most important ways we announce the kingdom of heaven has arrived in the person of Jesus is through a practice of jubilee celebration. That celebration becomes one of the most important tools that we have in our toolbox for announcing the presence and power of Jesus in our midst. And if you think about the story of Luke, like Jesus does this thing, Luke 4, and then what happens after this in the book of Luke? There is a massive explosion of Jesus throwing banquets and parties and telling stories and teachings about the nature of celebration in the kingdom of God. And all of it is set against a backdrop of sinful, broken world. Think about this. I, I, Luke 19, Jesus encounters this guy named Zacchaeus. He's a tax collector who has spent his entire career greedy and oppressing people, Jewish people, through oppressive taxation and heavy burdens on them to the Roman government. And Zacchaeus has an encounter with Jesus. And what happens right afterwards? Jesus dines with them. They throw a feast and a party. And in the midst of this celebration... Zacchaeus experiences release from the power of sin in his life by going and correcting the ways that he had hurt all the people around him. The backdrop of Christian celebration, like the scandal of it, is that enemies are invited to share at the same table with each other. Rich and poor coming together in the name of Jesus, breaking bread with one another. Zacchaeus is a prime example of that. That for Zacchaeus, Jubilee that came through Jesus looked like 
taking on a life of correcting his wrongs and sharing what he had. In the next one here, Luke 15, Jesus tells the three different stories of lost things that are found, and then after each one of those lost things are found, a sheep, a coin, and a son, there is a massive party, a massive celebration, because the scandal of Christian celebration is that God offers generosity even in the backdrop of our sin, that there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 who do not need to repent. Have you ever wondered why we make such a big deal about baptisms around here? It's because it is a physical symbol of that death-to-life celebration, that I am dying to my old ways and I am celebrating the generous gift of God, which is new life that just celebrates his goodness and celebrates his provision. It is a lifestyle of jubilee. Another story Jesus tells. I mean, I could go on and on and Luke alone here. He tells parables where people are invited to, to a grand banquet. And he says, when you throw a banquet, don't take the highest position. Take a more humble position. Don't invite people who can pay you back. Invite people who can do nothing for you. Because this is what it looks like when the, the Jesus-type jubilee has gotten into your bones. You're more generous with what you have. The backdrop of sin and scarcity and prove myself and make a name for myself falls away in the midst of the celebration that Jesus offers. The scandal of Christian celebration is that it humbles the proud and elevates the humble. And Jesus just does this over and over again. A widow receives her son back. The blind, lepers, lame, and deaf people are released from their bondage of their broken bodies. A prostitute has her sins released. Jesus heals a woman with a hunched over back and says she is released from the bond of Satan. The scandal of Christian celebration is that Jesus comes into a dark world, a broken world, a world ruled in so many ways by the power of sin, and he says, I am offering you release. And that, my friends, is cause for a lifetime of celebration. See, celebration is one of the most important ways that we announce the kingdom of God. And so, as a church, part of this is we just need to get really good at throwing parties. But it's also understanding this, and I love what Leslie Newbegin says about this. He says this, the mission, he's talking about of the church, begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something we cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? The mission of the church and the pages of the New Testament is more like the fallout from a vast explosion, a radioactive fallout which is not lethal but life-giving. The scandal of Christian joy is the backdrop that it's set against. That Jesus has taken all of the powers of sin, all of the powers of death and shame and unforgiveness and bitterness and growing resentment, he has taken that on himself. And then the ultimate invitation to Jubilee celebration has said, I am releasing you of that. Friends, that's good news for every single one of us. That is good news no matter what shame you bring into this place. That is good news no matter what kind of resentment or bitterness you are hanging on to with somebody else. That is good news for you. I want to just close our time together by, by sharing a story that 
really has been stirring in my heart for the last couple weeks here. So a couple weeks ago, my mom came over to um, my house, and we were just talking, and her parents, my, my grandma and grandpa, they're aging right now, and um, they have been in and out of the hospital for various different things over the last year. Uh, my grandma's always had kind of deep lung issues, and so when she got COVID, it was really scary for our family, and she is really never fully recovered with the lung issues that she has. And so she was just in the hospital um, last week. And I was just talking to my mom about it, and my mom and I have gone over there on Thursdays, or I'm sorry, on Tuesdays, and uh, just spent time praying with them and um, just spending time with them. And this past week, my mom came over to my house, and she was describing her time with them this last Tuesday, and she just, she started crying and, and weeping. I said, Mom, what's up? And uh, she said, you know, I am so overwhelmed by the transformation that I've seen in my mom because of Jesus. She said, when I was growing up, my mom was, she was a decent enough mom, but she was a pretty distant mom. She had a job. She was way more invested in her career, it felt like, sometimes in her family or then faith. And so she was, you know, she was, it was fine, but it wasn't like stellar by any means. And she said, I have seen such a transformation in my mom over the years because of Jesus. And she said, we were there this last Tuesday, and your grandma couldn't even sit up to pray off the couch. She was laying down on the couch, and she couldn't even have the strength to sit up to pray. And she just started weeping in that moment. And my mom assumed, like, she's just, she's really upset and frustrated that she, she can't get up, that she can't do what she used to be able to do. My mom said that wasn't the reason she was weeping. She was weeping tears of joy in that moment because she said, all I can feel right now is the overwhelming presence of Jesus. And as I think about why that impacts me so deeply, it's because even in the backdrop of failing bodies and, and death ahead itself in some way, Jesus offers us reason for joy and celebration. That my grandma, I cannot see her to this day without her asking me how she can be praying for me, the, the love that just exudes from her, and that is only because of Jesus transforming her life. So what, what I'm here to tell you is that Jesus can transform the dynamics of families. He can transform the dynamics of marriages. He is in the business of jubilee, of taking broken things and making them whole, making them new creations once again. He desires to do that in your life. He desires to do that in the life of your family. He desires to do that in the life of this church, this community. And so as the band makes their way back up again, I, I just want to give you a couple kind of steps to live this out in your life. I believe putting these steps into practice can drastically change the way we experience joy. The, the first one is this. Number one, name the reasons you have not to celebrate. Just name them. Write them down. List them. Maybe for you, like we've said, maybe the reason you have not to celebrate, somebody's name comes to mind. Somebody who's hurt you. Somebody who you haven't forgiven yet. Maybe for you, it's feelings of uncertainty or anxiety or worry about something coming up in the future. Name the reasons you have right now not to celebrate. Name your backdrop. Name the areas of hidden sin in your life. 
Name all the reasons you have not to celebrate because you're always going to have a list of them. But then the step two, and this is a step that only happens at the cross of Jesus, release them. Release them. Bring that name of that person to the cross and release the grip you have around their neck. Pray for that person. It's really hard to hate people you pray for. If you are struggling with forgiveness, remember that it's at the cross that you have been forgiven extravagantly. That doesn't get to be a backdrop in your life anymore when you're in Christ. Maybe for you it's moments of anxiety. I've, I've shared this before. I've dealt with my own fair share of anxiety. And one of the things that I've found has been really helpful is it's at the cross where I am reminded that it all works out. In Jesus, it all works out. When you are in Christ, there is nothing that you are walking through that is not redeemed, nothing that's not turned into a reason for joy and celebration. You may not see it now, but the promise of God is that he works out all things for the good of those who believe and trust in him. And so it's at the cross where we release people, we release areas of sin and shame in our life and we lay them down. And then the last one here, is just join the celebration. Don't sit on the sidelines for what God wants to do in this community. That giving of yourself for other people, like like setting aside your own feelings, your own agenda, your own fears, and just pouring yourself out for the sake of others, that's a way we celebrate. What I love about the way Jesus celebrated is he didn't just say, hey, we're gonna throw a party and ignore the backdrop of the brokenness in the world. No, what he said is we're going to throw the doors open and invite all of that in. And we're going to actually transform that. We're going to invite the Spirit of God to move into that and do what only he can. And my friends, that is reason to celebrate. That's why when Brian shares just a few minutes ago about the way that celebration happens in small groups, if you're not in a small group, you're missing out on some of the celebration that God has for your life. That's why in in our kids' classrooms, my kids love coming to church. They were really mad last week when they couldn't be here. Why? Because we want this to be a place where celebration is experienced, that we celebrate Jesus. And so will you join the celebration this coming fall at New Life? There's so many exciting things on the horizon. We're throwing a big party on September 25th called Welcome Home Sunday. Don't miss it. We're doing a whole like Michigan-themed tailgating lunch and everything. It's going to be an awesome, awesome Sunday. Will you join the celebration that's happening here? Let me offer a word of prayer, and then we're going to respond in worship. Father, I just thank you so much that you are a God of celebration, a God of jubilee, a God of joy. And Father, where there are areas in our life where maybe we are holding on to all of the reasons that we have not to celebrate. God, will you return the joy of our salvation to us? That Jesus, may we we flood the streets with this explosion of joy, this explosion of jubilee celebration where we do things that don't make sense to the rest of the world because we are not living fixated on the backdrop. We are living fixated on you, the ultimate reason to celebrate. So Father, may we be extravagantly generous with what you've given us. 
May we be overwhelmingly joyful. And may we be radically forgiving and releasing. Father, we thank you for who you are. And we pray all of this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.